Leviticus chapter 9. We noted last Sunday that Leviticus 8, in a lot of ways, is a transition for us. We move from seven chapters of largely legalese to, beginning in chapter 8, an active narrative that will last eight days and carry us through the end of Leviticus chapter 10. We'll see that this morning. Now, for a complete commentary on the establishment of the priesthood, the Aaronic order, I refer you to c316.tv. We covered those things last Sunday. We're not going to really recap them for time constraints this morning. Now, for our purposes, chapter 8 closes, and you might want to look there. Chapter 8 closes with Moses telling Aaron and his sons to stay at the door of the tabernacle of meeting day and night for seven days. Moses adds that they were to keep the charge of the Lord so that they might, may not die. The stakes were, were high. And so we're told in chapter 8 closes that Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses, chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. So now it comes to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his son. So they come forth out of the tabernacle. He also calls the elders of Israel, the representatives of the people. And Moses said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering, also a bull and a ram, as peace offerings, to sacrifice to the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do. And then he reiterates, and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. Following these seven days of consecration, where Aaron and his sons had to remain inside the tabernacle, by the the door, the tabernacle of meeting, we're told, chapter 9 opens, that it came to pass on the eighth day, that Moses now calls them out and gives them new instructions. As the high priest, Aaron's first task would be to offer both a sin offering and a burnt offering for himself, before then commanding that the children of Israel bring to the tabernacle, well, all of the offerings we've been looking at, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, grain offerings. Not only does this tell us, does it mark Aaron's first day as high priest, and his son's first day as accompanying priests. But the directives indicate that now the tabernacle of meeting is officially opened for business. Not to sound like I'm beating a drum, but I hope you've already picked up on the numerical significance of this scene. The fact that it took seven days, right, for the consecration process of the priesthood to be completed, intends to take you and I, the reader, back to the original creation account, Genesis, to gain a deeper understanding of this reordering, this recreation. What's happening in the passage? I mean, during this week, 
where Aaron and his sons were inside the tabernacle, God was doing an amazing work. He was taking normal men and recreating them into new men, new people. Hey, they were now the priests. It's not an accident then that Aaron and his sons, after these seven days, are called out of the tabernacle on the eighth day. Well, the number seven in bibliology is the number of completion. Seven days in a week, seven notes to a scale. Eight. Eight implies something different. Seven completion, eight, signifies newness, a fresh start, a new beginning. In our New Testament context, eight is by extension a picture or representative of the grace of God, a new work, a new week. And being in the tabernacle for seven days, we understand that God was completing a work in the lives of Aaron and his sons. Being then called out by Moses on the eighth day tells us that that work was finished. It was completed. Newness of life given. Something fresh beginning. Not to take the typology further than what would be appropriate, but the scene we have here, it's really familiar of Jesus and his resurrection. A week of passion. A week for a work. That work finished. Our great high priest emerging from a garden tomb, starting something new on when? The eighth day. The beginning of a new week. It's why Jewish understanding of worship went from the last day of the week to a new day, from Saturday, the Sabbath, the Sabbath, to now Sunday. Jesus finished the work of redemption. Then he comes forth, initiating something new, something founded, based on grace. The other thing that you need to see is that within the undercurrent of Aaron and his priests now making the first offerings, we find a palpable anticipation. Like the initial instructions to Aaron and the elders of Israel in verse 4 are then repeated to the congregation in verse 6. Moses promises them, this is what you need to do. Do what the Lord has commanded. Do what I've told you. And if you do these things, what will happen? What will result? If you do what the Lord has commanded, the glory of the Lord will appear. Do these offerings, do these sacrifices, Aaron first for you, then for the congregation, and then God is going to show up. That's awesome. Now before we, we move on, there is kind of a, a more macro point I want to make about the passage. There are those who find the idea of God determining a specific way that he has to be approached, one way. People will claim that that's narrow, that's narrow-minded, it's restrictive. But the problem with such a perspective is that it ignores two incredible realities. <laughs> One, it takes kind of a bit of an audacity to complain that there's more than one way when you, when you realize that we should be really thankful there's any way, right? There's a way that sinners can be reconciled to God. I don't need multiple ways. There's a way. Incredible. The other thing, though, is that if you do seek God the way that he established for you to seek him, 
there is an incredible promise. Moses says again, if you do what the Lord has commanded, if you approach me the way that I've told you I need to be approached, the promise, the glory of the Lord will appear to you. Friend, I hope you know that if you search for God the way that God has determined you to search for him, you will absolutely find him. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. James 4 verse 8, if you draw near to God, what happens? He will, it's a promise, draw near to you. Verse 7, and Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now, in the previous chapter, we noted that Moses does something really interesting. He, he acts in a lot of ways as an initial high priest for the high priest. Moses acts as a priest making initial sacrifices for the priesthood. That being said, in this verse, in this passage, we see a transition Moses will no longer operate as a priest at all. He won't offer sacrifices. The mantle after these seven days of consecration have been completed. The the priesthood is now in Aaron. Moses, he takes his hands off of things. Moving forward, Aaron will be the high priest. His sons will be priests. Verse 8, Aaron therefore went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. Now, just a side point. Do you think that there was any irony, poetic justice to the fact that Aaron's first job is to, is to sacrifice a calf? The man that just weeks earlier had built a, a golden calf to facilitate the idolatry of the people. He, this same man now is, is sacrificing a calf. It, the grace, right, that, that the calf maker would be the first high priest. It's, it's an amazing thing. I think it's like Aaron thought to himself, wow. I don't deserve any of this. And the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him. He dipped his finger in the blood, put it on the horns of the altar, poured the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, the fatty lobe from the liver of the sin offering, Aaron burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh, the hide, he burned with fire outside the camp. So there was this whole process. We've examined these things before. Aaron killed the burnt offering. His sons presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled all around the altar. Then they presented the burnt offering to Aaron with its pieces and head, and he burned them on the altar. He washed the entrails, the legs, burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Verse 15, then Aaron brought the people's offering. So his offerings have been satisfied. Now he brings the people's offerings. Took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people. And and if you recall, you know, the sin offering, when it's for the congregation of Israel, the elders... They're at the door, would be the ones to lay their hands on the head, confess their sins, this idea of transference, the elders representing the people at large. We're told that Aaron then killed it, offered it for sin like the first one, and he brought the burnt offering, offered it according to the prescribed manner. So he's doing things exactly the way he was told to do it, which (laughs) will play later into our story. He brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, burned it on the altar, Besides the burnt offering of the morning. Aaron also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. And Aaron and his sons 
presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled around the altar, the fat, the bull, the ram, the fatty tail, which covers the entrails, the kidneys, the fatty lobe attached to the liver. And they put the fat on the breast. That's cool. Then Aaron burned <laughs> the fat on the altar, put the breast and the right thigh. He waved as a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. Aaron lifted his hand towards the people. There's no instructions for this. But he lifts his hands towards the people. He blesses them, pronounces blessings. It's in the active tense. And he came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. Before we continue, there's just two just simple observations. First, what a day, right? I mean, what a day. I mean, after offering the necessary sin and burnt offerings to atone for his own sin, Aaron and his sons get to work making all of these appropriate offerings on behalf of the entire congregation of Israel. Again, keep in mind, they've never done any of this before. This is all brand new. They've never made these offerings. As they're going through it, they're probably a little timid. They're referring back to, hey, what, what did Leviticus 2 say specifically uh, about how we're supposed to do this? They're going through this process. They've never done these things before. Also keep in mind, as you're playing this out, cutting up the animals and doing all this stuff, this was labor-intensive. I mean, these guys are tired, they're sweaty, they're worn out, they're covered in blood. It's bloody. They're butchers. So this is quite a, a, quite a picture, quite a day. The first of its kind. The second observation, in many ways, develops from things we haven't looked at, but from a narrative established earlier in the book of Leviticus. And the idea is that you can't help but notice in these verses, if you take all of these things into account, Aaron. <laughs> Aaron has undergone quite a transformation. From being the spokesman for Moses that never speaks, to then being, you know, he finally has his moment to oversee, supervise the people while Moses goes against the law and makes a calf for them. Like, Aaron's had kind of a rocky, rocky development. But in this passage, this picture here of him, of him performing all these duties and then covered in blood, drenched in sweat, lifting his hands and pronouncing blessings, interceding. Like, like it's clear to me that Aaron... Aaron has undergone a transformation. He's been chosen by God. He is submitted to a new identity. He's becoming someone he wasn't beforehand. You know, people who experience God's grace, like Aaron, when they know they don't deserve it, those people never remain the same. There's always a change. Matter of fact, there's an immediate change when you understand the totality of God's grace. Verse 23. We close out the chapter, Moses and Aaron. They go into the tabernacle of meeting. There's a pause. We don't know how long. Then they come out. And again, bless the people. No idea how long they were in the tabernacle, what happens in the tabernacle, what's said in the tabernacle, no clue. It's just 
We're not told. They come out and they're blessing the people. Then, look at this. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Like, imagine being in the crowd for this event. To see these things happen. First, this reaction of the people. The fire comes out and they shout, and then they fall on their faces. This, this word for shout, it's an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it doesn't imply terror, as if they were screaming in horror. No, instead, it's a shout of jubilee, of joy. Like when your team scores a touchdown and you jump off the couch, hooray, that's the idea, the shouting. It's a happiness. They're ecstatic. And then additionally, this, they're falling on their faces. It's not as though that they're like, oh my goodness, we're freaking out, let's hide. It's, oh my goodness, God has shown up. This is an amazing thing. And, and then that excitement turns to an adoration. It turns to a worship. They all emulate this posture of reverence. They fall on their face and they're worshiping God. This is customary of respect. Now, you and I, let's be real. We would have been freaked out. I mean, let's, let's be frank on that. Fireball coming out from the Holy Holies, consuming the altar. I'm scared to death. It's like that scene in Indiana Jones where the ark of the, you know, the, the fire coming, the people melting, and that's what I would be worried about. But this group of people, keep in mind, they've kind of experienced a lot already. Like, like they're not freaked out. They're excited. I mean, they had seen some amazing things in Egypt, hadn't they? I mean, some, some incredible things. In, not only that, but then they, see, they saw the, the Red Sea part. And they saw the presence of God moving around. They'd seen a lot of supernatural things. So this is just tack it on. We got into the wilderness, things got weird. They're continuing to be weird. The scene described. You have the congregation of Israel surrounding the tent of meeting, surrounding the tabernacle, overcome with real joy, raw emotion. God's presence has appeared, has come down and has indwelt this tabernacle, this tent. Divine fire has come out of the holies. The Holy of Holies has consumed the altar. God had accepted their offering. He had accepted their sacrifices. As mentioned, if you offer these things, I will accept it for atonement. And the fire is the evidence that we're right with God. How glorious. How incredible. Now, aside from the practical implications, you kind of need to, to, to take a step back from the text and realize that what you're reading, what we just read, what we're seeing here is probably one of the most radical days in all of human history. The presence of God filling this temple, sending fire out to consume an offering. We're good. We're right. We're together. I'm in your midst. It's an amazing thing. Radical thing. 
God has reestablished an important connection. Yes, shielded to an extent by a veil. God is in their midst. Yes, he had to be approached through sacrifices, but he's accessible. It's an amazing moment in time. That being said, in a fascinating twist of sorts, the only thing that's really been accomplished in Leviticus 9 at the tabernacle of meeting is a return of sorts. Like this scene that you find here at the tabernacle in Leviticus 9, as amazing as it is, well, it's not unique. N- next week, we'll, bu- we'll, we'll build on all of these things. I don't have time this morning. But I think Leviticus 9 is nothing more than a return to the same scene in Genesis chapter 4. Everyone here is around the camp. That was a tease, so you'll have to come back next Sunday. They're worshiping the Lord. They're overwhelmed with joy. Sacrifices have been accepted. And then the story instantly shifts. So we're going to kind of roll right on here. So you've got the scene in mind. It's an awesome thing. Then the scene shifts back to the activities of the priests in the tabernacle. There are no chapter breaks. The story is flowing from one thing to another. So the glory of the Lord has come down. Fire has come out. It's consumed the altar. People are shouting. People are now on their face worshiping the Lord. It's this incredible moment. Verse 1 of Leviticus 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord which the Lord had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, many of you are, you can't help but have your jaw hit the floor and think, what did I just read? This is like the greatest moment in human history. We're worshiping. This is great. And while all this is going on, you got Nadab and Abihu walking over there doing their thing, and then boom, fireball comes out again consumes them. I mean, seriously. Think about it this way. Since the middle portion of Exodus, with God's instructions about the priests, what they were to wear, the creation formation of the tabernacle, we've been building to this moment 20 plus chapters of Exodus Eight chapters of Leviticus have set the stage for Aaron and his sons to be priests and to get to work. The tabernacle is open. The launch has been flawless. Sacrifice is made. The glory of the Lord descends, fills the Holy of Holies. Fire comes out, consumes the sacrifice. People overcome with joy. Shouts turn to reverence. Congregation worships God. It's awesome. It's glorious. God's in the midst of his people. Everything is perfect. And then it's not. Again, imagine being there to see another blast of fire come out from the presence of God and devour literally half of the priests that are doing their thing. What? half the priests. Like to say that the congregation was stunned would have been an understatement. 
like those who knew Nadab and Abihu, like start screaming in terror, dismay. Everyone else is kind of frozen. What did I just see? And what's going to happen next? Now, we don't know how long it took for, for Moses and Aaron to process the scene. But it becomes clear from Aaron's initial reaction that Moses knows, I got to act very swift or things are going to get worse. Verse 3, so Moses says to Aaron immediately, his two oldest sons have just been devoured by fire from God. Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke. Saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Now, this statement isn't recorded anywhere in Scripture. Like, we don't have a record of God saying this to Moses and Aaron, which leads most scholars to conclude that, you remember that moment where they go into the tabernacle in the last chapter where we're not told what happens? Most people assume that this was the message that God gave Moses and Aaron. Like, this is the thing. Like, Aaron, remember? God has just told us something that was important. Like, like either way, judging by Aaron's reaction to this bit of advice, this reminder that he held his peace, you kind of get the, 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 the sense that the core point that Moses is making in the moment sheds a little light into what Nadab and Abihu may have just done to cause them to receive a swift judgment. Aaron's about to lose it, and Moses is like, they deserved it, remember? And he backs off. Now, verse 4, so Moses calls Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron. Now, all the family connections, that means that these two men are actually the cousins of Aaron and Moses. Don't forget, Moses and Aaron are brothers. And so Moses says to them, his cousins, come near and carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. <laughs> so they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And again, the whole congregation's watching this. Like the smell of burnt flesh and human hair. Yeah, your, your cousins, we got to deal with this. So you guys take them out of the camp. And, and imagine like the camp parting as they're carrying the, these two pieces of overcooked Kentucky fried chicken. I mean, they are scorched. Then Moses says to Aaron, and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, these are the remaining two. So the other half of the priesthood. One half has been burnt alive. The other half we've got to address. Moses says, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, which was common in mourning, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brother and the whole house of Israel bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. I'm sure they would. Like, these men are on duty. Like, this is day one of the priesthood. We're setting all kinds of important precedents. Day one. The anointing oil of the Lord is upon them. So Moses instructs Aaron, Eleazar, Ithamar, to do something that would, would have been very difficult. 
basically, he comes to them and he's like, guys, you need to just keep on. Like, you can't stop. Like, you can't take a break. I need a 15. No, you got to keep, keep on. You got to keep doing this. You're under the watchful eye of the people. And the reason that this is important, while others could, could mourn or be well the burning which the Lord had kindled, these men couldn't, and here's why. If they tore their clothes, if they, if they adopted the customary uh, presentation of mourning and grief and whatnot, they might indirectly articulate to the people watching that what God had just done was unjust. You see, what Nadab and Abihu got, they deserved. So Moses is like, you guys need to continue because you don't need to articulate to the people that maybe in some way what God had done wasn't right. So you need to swallow it and keep on. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, which is interesting, verse 8, because it's the only time in Leviticus that we actually have recorded God speaking solely to Aaron. So the Lord speaks to Aaron. He says, do not drink wine nor intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting lest you'll die. The context here of this particular prohibition being included in this specific moment likely provides another insight into what the sin of Nadab and Abihu was, which we'll get to in a minute. The Lord continues, It shall be a statute forever, Aaron, throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and unclean, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Verse 12, And Moses spoke to Aaron, to Eleazar, to Ithamar, his sons who were left, Take the grain offering that remains and the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar for it is holy. You shall eat it in the holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord. For so I have commanded. Moses continues, the breast of the wave offering, the thigh of the heave offering, you shall eat in a clean place. You, your sons, your daughters with you. They are your due, your son's due, which are given from the sacrifices of the peace offerings to the children of Israel, of the children of Israel, the thigh of the heave offering, the breast of the wave offering, they shall bring the offerings of fire, of fat made by fire, to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. It shall be yours, your sons with you by a statute forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now, it seems like a really awkward place, you know, for such instructions. You can still smell Nadab and Abihu. But Moses is doing something very human. In, in many ways, it's, it's important. It's tender. Like, there's no question. Aaron, Eleazar, Ithamar are dealing with some very serious emotions. <laughs> right? Like, a father has just witnessed his two oldest sons burned alive. And two younger brothers have likely just witnessed their heroes their best friends die a horrific and sudden death. Like, they're dealing with some things, right? Not only can you understand them being in, in shock, a little shell-shocked, disbelief, time slows, but God has just told them that if they mourn at all, 
they would also die. Like, I think Moses, what we're seeing here, he, he sees them. And there's a glaze. There's likely fear. And, and so he jumps into the fray. And what does he do? He just kind of calmly reminds them what they're supposed to be doing. Like in, in the fog of raw emotions, the natural confusion they'd be experiencing. Moses just kind of, hey guys, this is what we're supposed to be doing. These are the offerings that still remain for today. Aaron, Eleazar, Ithamar, are you with me? I, I, I know today's kind of been rough, but we have to keep going. We got to finish. Now, after some time transpires, things kind of calm. Verse 16, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering. So he's inspecting their work. And there it was, burned up. And Moses was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron who were left, saying, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in the holy place as I commanded. <laughs> According to the law, when the sin offering was made on behalf of the congregation, the protocol stipulated, and we explored these things, the, the protocol stipulated that the priests, in this case, Eleazar and Ithamar, were to bring the blood inside the tabernacle. There was all kinds of places they were to be spreading it and putting it, whatnot. In addition to that, they were also supposed to eat the goat. Sadly, they hadn't obeyed. Instead of eating the goat, they burned it all up. And instead of bringing the blood inside the tabernacle, they had left it outside. And in light of everything that had just happened, Moses loses his mind. He's like, what are you guys doing? You're not doing it right. Has the lesson been any clearer that God kind of cares about how this stuff is done? And you're messing it up. Well, verse 19, and Aaron says to Moses, look. I think it was strong in the Hebrew. Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. And such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. Or, or literally, he was, he was satisfied by Aaron's reaction. Like, like Moses... Moses is ticked off. And I love the way that Aaron handles the situation. It's as though, let me paraphrase, Moses, yo Mo, you need to chill out. We've never done the priest thing before, bro. And let's be real. It's been a hard day. Today has really stunk. Don't know if you're aware, two of my sons are dead. Eleazar, Ithamar, they lost their bros. And now here we are, can't mourn, doing our thing, pressing on. 
and you want to come and hammer us because we didn't bring the blood in and eat the goat. Can we get real for a minute? You need to back off. <laughs> to his credit, Moses, I can, I can imagine he's kind of like, yeah, you know, you're probably right. You make a good point. The question here that Aaron poses to Moses, if I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? This is an interesting statement. You can really read it one of two different ways and be correct. On one end, Aaron is saying that if he had eaten the offering at this point, all things considered, he would have just been going through the motions, which the Lord wouldn't have wanted him to do anyway. Or, and and I kind of like this too, that Aaron is saying, listen, I'm the high priest, which means that I'm responsible for everything that's happening here. And two of my sons did it wrong, got judged, and I'm culpable. I can't eat this sin offering because I'm guilty. So I just needed to let it roll. Before we place the story into a larger context, I want to just address what we haven't. What did Nadab and Abihu do worthy of a public execution? Let's start with what we know. Like whatever they did was so egregious that God found it necessary to immediately devour them with fire. Just let that sink in. Whatever it was that they did was bad. The word that we have in verse 2 translated as devoured is the identical word that we have at the end of Leviticus 9 where we're told that the fire consumed the burnt offering. Devoured, consumed, same Hebrew word. In the first instance, we see a fire, right, that demonstrated God's approval. In the second, we see fire of his disapproval, judgment. Like whatever it was these two chaps did, God was so upset He immediately said, you're fired. Fired. You're fired. You get it? You you get You're fired. Fire came out. Okay. You with me? Okay. Verse 1, we're told that Nadab and Abihu each took censers. Now, the censer, this was a metal pan that, that you would use to transfer coals from one place to another. We're told that they, they took censers. They put fire in the censer. They put incense on the fire. They offered then profane fire before the Lord. That's what happened. In the Hebrew, the word that we have translated here, profane, it's actually a kind of a poor translation. What, what would be better stated is, as it was strange fire or, or unauthorized, unacceptable, foreign Like, we can't say for sure where the fire exactly originated other than the fact that there was something off about the origin of the fire itself. That's what made it strange, unacceptable. In a separate but related note, according to the protocols of Exodus 30, every morning it was the singular job of the high priest, not these two men, Aaron, though. It was the job of the high priest to take coals, using a censer, from the bronze altar where the burnt offerings were were made. 
So it was the job of the high priest to take coals from the place of the sacrifice using the censer to take them into the tabernacle to the altar of incense using those coals, incense, so that there would be this sweet aroma before the Lord. That was the job of the high priest, not these guys. So with this in mind, there are two procedural errors that Nadab and Abihu committed. One, it wasn't their job to tend to the altar of incense in the first place. So we can say that they were doing here something they weren't commanded to be doing. And secondly, the fire that they used in their censer didn't originate from the appropriate source, which was the bronze altar. So Nadab and Abihu took fire from an improper source in an attempt to fill a task that God hadn't commanded. Now, as mentioned earlier, the rest of our story provides for us, I think, two additional clues that paint a more complete picture. First, immediately following Nadab and Abihu's death, in fact, as their bodies are smoldering, in verse 3, Moses again goes to Aaron. He's distraught. He reminds him what? That the Lord had told them, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I, the Lord, must be glorified. And in response, Aaron held his peace. He understood what Moses was saying about the situation. So whatever it was that Nadab and Abihu do, and, and again, to mention, they're engaging a, a, a task, that they're, they're drawing fire from a, a place that wasn't permitted to accomplish a task they weren't asked to do. In addition to those things, it would have seemed, from what Moses says to Aaron, that they were showboating. That there was something about the way now in which they were doing these two things that they were trying to bring attention to themselves. You see, in a place centered on God, which is what the tabernacle of meaning was all about, in a moment, don't forget, where the entire congregation is worshiping the Lord, the focal point's God, the activity is about God, God is in the center, in the midst of all this, you've got Nadab and Abihu kind of doing their thing, trying to get glory that isn't theirs, attention that should be reserved for God. They're being a distraction. By those who come near, I must be regarded as holy. Before all the people, I must be glorified. Billy Graham once said, we're never more like Satan than when we touch the glory. For anyone that's engaged in any type of Christian service at all, I think the lesson is straightforward and couldn't be clear. The other detail that kind of rounds out our understanding of what has happened in this moment is that in the midst of all of these things, God speaks to Aaron. There's the fallout. And what does he do? Out of nowhere, he adds a prohibition of the priest drinking wine or intoxicating drink while on duty. This would be bizarre, especially for God to bring it up to a grieving father, unless there wasn't some way in which alcohol consumption had contributed to whatever Nadab and Abihu had done that was so egregious. Like the context makes this relevant. Like it should be pointed out that intoxication didn't give these men an excuse for disobeying God nor did it provide them a, like a pass 
from the necessary consequences. So they were acting to bring attention to themselves, and they were hammered while they were doing it. So they weren't in their full faculty. And the prohibition here, it's not that you can't drink. It's like, while you're being a priest doing these things, don't drink. Like, you need to be level-headed in your right mind. It's not about you, it's about me. I need you focused. Regardless of what their specific crime was. And again, that's all we know. And I think God's intentionally vague. Just so we know he's serious. Because that's really the the point of it all. That God is articulating to the congregation that he's serious about how things operate in the tabernacle. Like he's establishing a precedent by, by smoting Nadab and Abihu, letting everyone know that failing to do the things the way that God has ordered them to be done is not something that he was going to tolerate. And why? Well, we understand that all of these things were important because they, they told us about Jesus. That all of these procedures and protocols were important because they all had a fulfillment in Christ and His work. God finds them serious because of what they mean, making them, in turn, literally a matter of life and death. When you keep the purpose for Leviticus in mind, it really isn't a surprise that God would act in the way that he does in this situation. And follow me here. God had intentionally placed his reputation in the world into the hands of the Hebrew people. It's why one of the Ten Commandments was what? Don't take my name in vain. That was one of the ten, top ten. Don't take my name in vain. What does that mean? It doesn't mean don't don't curse or don't take his name like in a verbal sense. No, what the idea in the Hebrew literally is articulating is that you need, because you represent me, you need to carry my name well and the way you act and the way you speak. You represent me, so represent me well. Don't take my name in vain. Like whatever it was that Nadab and Abihu did, God had not commanded it be done by them and therefore God took offense to it. It didn't represent him appropriately. Now, in way of application, you should note that there are two different kinds of fire that we see here, right? There is a divine fire that originates in God and God alone, and then there is a strange fire that's an alternative that God detests. What's interesting is that the only acceptable fire that was to be used in the tabernacle, it had to come directly from the Lord consuming the burnt offering upon the bronze altar. That's where the fire came from. Something that symbolized Jesus. It's why in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit gets poured out and God starts this brand new work, what do we see resting on top of all those in the room? We see tongues as a fire. Not that they were fire, they looked like fire. But again, within that fire, we see two things within the imagery. God's approval and His empowering. Our power as Christians only comes from God and God alone. And Christian, I want you to know, 
that the only fire that should ever motivate your spiritual life, the only fire that can motivate your Christian service, should come from the cross of Calvary, which is what the burnt offering was all about. What is the one thing that constrains us? It is the love of Christ. So always know when your service to Jesus is fueled by any source other than Jesus, it's strange and unacceptable. In fact, when your service is motivated by anything other than God's grace, or you engage in a Christian work desiring glory unto yourself, there's one thing always guaranteed to happen. It's a law. You'll get burned. In closing, I know this will sound strange <laughs> up front if we couldn't get any stranger. But, but for me, as I read this passage, I can't help but notice that God's grace it pulses under the surface of this story. And you might say, wait a second, we got two guys that get burnt to a crisp, other guys that can't mourn, uh, interaction with Moses and Aaron. We got priests drinking on duty, glory. Where, where do you get the grace, Zach? Consider, first and foremost, how much of a failure this day really was. Like all of the work to set up the tabernacle, to build it, all of the instructions, and then, and then how to create the priesthood and form the priesthood. The amount of work that went into the garments that just got scorched. The order of it all. So much time, energy, effort, creativity, and they mess it up immediately. I mean, if you're God up in heaven, you got to be like, you're kidding me. You people. I mean, it's literally day one. And the train has completely run off the rails. Day one. Half the priests have died. You know, if you were Aaron, think about it for a moment. You just see two of your sons burnt alive. Like, what would you have expected to follow? I mean, you're the high priest. Tabernacle's your responsibility. Half of your sons have made a mockery of the holy been judged as a result. Like best case scenario if you're Aaron is that God will absolutely relieve you of your duties and be like, you know, I tried with you, Aaron, and you blew it, so leave, and I'm going to call out another guy, and maybe his sons won't make a mess of it. Like that's kind of your best case scenario. We've totally messed this up. We're also going to get fired. But that doesn't happen. Like, don't miss that. God doesn't fire Aaron. In, in fact, while Aaron would have considered himself disqualified from continuing as high priest, God comes to him with a simple message. Like if you summarize it all into its idea, it's as though God comes to Aaron and he says, Aaron, yeah, yeah that wasn't good. We really blew that. But there's always tomorrow. Let's keep going. Like, and, and consider how that idea presented in, in Leviticus 10 is kind of a microcosm 
of God's entire history of dealing with people. Adam was given perfect creation, makes a mess of it. God comes to him and says, yeah, yeah, that's not good. You ate the fruit, didn't you? And just when you, Adam would have thought, like, me and my wife are, are smoke, God's going to start, he's, he says, no, that wasn't good. But you know what? Let's just keep going. And then, and then it doesn't take long for all of humanity to rebel, right? God has to destroy everyone with a flood, and he comes to Noah, and he's like, Noah, that was not good. But let's, let's just kind of keep going. And then Noah's descendants rebel again, and God has to scatter them in disgust, choosing Abraham, and he comes, and he's like, Abraham, yeah, all that. Man, that wasn't good either. But let's just kind of keep going. And then God delivers Israel from Egypt, brings them to Sinai, so that they might be his people. Moses is receiving the law. They make a golden calf, start worshiping it. God puts an end and judges it and then says to them, guys, that wasn't good either. But let's just, let's just keep going. And in the end, this particular nation fails to obey all of the things we're looking at. God has to judge them by kicking them out of the land, destroying their temple. And then after 70 years where the land could rest, God comes back and he says, Ezra and Nehemiah, yeah, that wasn't good. But let's keep going. And then God sends His only begotten Son to the nation to reveal Himself and His love. And they nail Him to a tree and kill Him. And God raises Him from the dead and then He says, Man, that wasn't good. <laughs> but, let's, but let's keep going. Like, like, Do you notice a pattern in the relationship that God has with humanity? God has a plan, includes us, we screw it up, and then God says, yeah, <laughs> Zach, that wasn't good. No, but let's keep going. Like the most incredible part of the pattern of what we see in all the scriptures is that there's three constants God includes us in His plan for the world. We fail and mess it all up. And then in His grace, He comes to us and He says, that wasn't good, but let's just keep going. Those are the constants. God wants to use you. You'll screw it up. And He'll come back and say, yeah, I saw it coming. <laughs> I knew who I was working with. But let's just keep going. Like this morning, what we should take from this passage, it's true. There, there is a warning here as to the seriousness of sin. Unquestionably, God does not like when His priests, of which we are, He doesn't like us misrepresenting Him. He has placed His reputation at stake in us. But there's another lesson. And that is the fact that just under the surface of your failures resides a mighty reservoir of God's grace. So if you're here this morning and you feel like a total failure, we'll know why. You're a failure. That's why you feel like one. I feel like I've made a whole mess of things. Well, you feel that way because you've you made a mess of things. 
And yeah, there are natural consequences to sin. I mean, anytime you play around with strange fire, you're going to get burnt. But please listen clearly to what God is saying through this ancient story. Oh, you messed up. You failed. That wasn't good. (laughs) But let's keep going. A Christian, always remember the only way that you can ever sing of the sweet sound of God's amazing grace is when you directly follow it with the humbling stanza that in His grace, He saved a wretch like me. If you forget you're a wretch, you lose sight of how awesome His grace is. Isn't that encouraging? So, Father, thank you for your word and what it says to us.